since it's December, middle of December. Two weeks ago, I guess it was, that I went through the Song of Moses, showing who God is and what He had done for Israel, what He expected of Israel, uh, and I think we saw pretty well tied in that this was a projection, not only for them as they were about to cross the Jordan, but also what would happen in the latter days, again, as interjected into chapter 31 and verse 29. So it was a prophecy that extended not only to them, but beyond them to us. I think we'll see a little more of that before we're done. I'm going to try not to get too cranked up today. Uh, I've been fighting off a cold. I feel fine now, but uh, my throat's still a little ticklish, and I, I always chronically have a little bit of a chest congestion. You've probably noticed to your dismay, uh, but it's worse when I have a cold, and poor Keith was with me in the car for several days listening to me hack and snort and blow and cough and... Uh, I'm amazed that he didn't hit me alongside the head at some point. Anyway, I'm going to try to take it easy and and not push my voice too much, or I might have the same thing happen here. Anyway, we came down to the end of this song of Moses in verse 45 of chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. And I will pick it up there, because after he had spoken that song, uh, which... I'm sure was put to music and probably sung for some time. And as I said before, I wonder if it should not be done again. Uh, But I don't know anyone here who has the talents for that, to, to write the music and put it together in a way that would be pleasant to sing. Maybe we'll sing it one day. But after he had made an end of the song formally, per se, He said to them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which you shall command your children to observe to do all the words of this law. So he was speaking of the law of God as summarized in the book of Deuteronomy. And I think that's why that it does say to read Deuteronomy every seventh year at the feast, because There isn't time in a Feast of Tabernacles really to go through all the law, but Deuteronomy is the last book of the five and does give a good summary of what is in the rest of the law. So he adjured them to keep the law, always to do it and to teach it to our children. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. He equates his law, his statutes, his judgments with our life. Because he had already told them that if they disobeyed, it would lead to cursing and death. If they obeyed, it would lead to blessing and life. So our lives really hinge on the law of God. And that's why at the end of the book of Revelation, the last apostle standing wrote the last book that was codified as part of the Bible, and at the very end he said we need to be keeping the laws of God and named a category of people there who would not be in the kingdom, and that category included those who would break the law. And yet we have whole huge churches today around the world who claim the law is done away. Isn't that strange? So this is something right through to the end, the latter days, that we're to teach our children, and it is our life. And through this thing you shall prolong your days in the land. Now there is a promise of life and continued life, prolong or make longer in the land. And now we are at the time when many, many people are already dying in this land of disease Uh, that has been brought upon us by wrong methods, wrong way of living. And if we come out of those things and obey God's law, when worse things start coming on them and more and more and more of them start dying, including those in the church, 
If we are truly doing it God's way, our lives will be prolonged. That's a promise Moses was making. Where you go over Jordan to possess it. So when you get into the promised land, he talks a little more about the promised land down in the end of, or in chapter 33, we'll be there in a little bit, so I won't go into it now. And the Eternal spoke to Moses that selfsame day, saying, Get you up into this mountain, Abarim, unto Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, that is over against Jericho, and behold the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel for a possession. So the Canaanites had moved into the land uh, and were there while Israel was in Egypt. And as they marched through the desert then for 40 years, the Canaanite was entrenched in the land that was to become their land or the land that they were to return to that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been in before going to Egypt. He said, told him then, And die in the mount where you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. Because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, because you sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. He was kept from going into the promised land because he was a little presumptuous at that point. His selfish attitude took over and he said something he shouldn't have said the way he said it. Now to you and me, it might not sound like a big deal in some respects. God said, speak to the rock. And he got angry because the people were complaining against God. Moses was on God's side. But he didn't follow instructions to the letter. And in a fit of anger, he struck the rock. And God kept him out of the promised land because of that. God is very concerned about attitudes of presumption, of ego, of temper, which is basically selfishness, is what temper is. And he penalized him pretty heavily for that. You know, when God says the sin of presumption is as witchcraft, he's echoing what he is laying on Moses right here. We need to be very careful about presuming anything that God does not lead us to, ask us to do, or that we take upon ourselves. And though this seemed like a small thing compared to a lot of sins of other people, uh, Moses was in a position of leadership, and as a representative of God, he let his patience get away from him. Now, God says we can be angry and sin not, and God does get very, very angry himself in total righteousness. But it is not a selfish anger that God has. It is an anger that people are hurting themselves. They are not doing those things that would cause their lives to be happy and productive, but leading to self-destruction, which is what this whole world is in the middle of right now. And he's very angry about that. And he became very angry with his church because we were self-righteous, self-centered, lackadaisical, and not putting our whole heart into serving him. And that's why we're scattered to the winds today. So even as they did not go into the promised, or Moses didn't go into the promised land, God brought his church up to the verge, almost, of the end time and blew it apart, and only one-tenth of it now is going to be saved out of the tribulation. They won't go back into the promised land where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked. Only those who repent and overcome. And I count it a great treasure that you and I understand what to do. Now, getting it done is yet another thing. 
and I understand that as well. But what a blessing it is to at least know what to do and be working in that direction as opposed to being like so many, many who don't even know what happened or why or have any idea what to do about it. It's sad. So we can count ourselves very, very blessed. And then we need to react properly to that blessing. Even Moses, who was one God spoke with face to face, and he didn't do that very often, uh, was penalized for an attitude, a little snit he got in. So he told him to go and die there. Yet you shall see the land before you, verse 52, but you shall not go there under the land which I give the children of Israel. I'll let you look, I'll let you see, I'll let you go up on the mountain and survey it, but you're not going in. I was talking to somebody this last week. We're having some difficulties with their grown children who are being very, very selfish and obnoxious and trying to get everything that the parents have before they die. And they lay guilt upon them. Well, you don't love us. You don't love me or you'd give me this. You don't love me or you'd give me that. The best, the best example I could come up with to counteract their emotional reaction against that where they felt, well, maybe we don't love them enough. You know, you, you can begin to feel guilty if they lay enough guilt on you. I said, well, what about God? He loves His children more than anybody could possibly love their physical children on this earth. And yet, He will not put up with rebellion, with presumption, with selfishness, self-centeredness. We've already read in this book how if your son was rebellious, he was to be stoned. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, we have to kill the rebelliousness within us spiritually today. But if we don't, we ultimately will suffer the death penalty, won't we? Because God will not allow rebellious children in His kingdom. We might plead and whine and wail, well, you promised us this, you promised us that. Yes, but you didn't do your part. And some will go into the lake of fire. There will be gnashing, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will happen. Now, I don't think it's going to be a great number of people who go there, because I think most people, when they have opportunity under different conditions, are going to repent. God is a successful father, not a failure. But he's going to get people's attitudes changed so that they are not rebellious and snotty. They're going to be warm and loving and sweet and eager and serving and giving and loving. This is the way they're going to be. Otherwise, he's not going to let them pollute the whole barrel. Get rid of the bad apples. That's the way God is. So I said, you need to lay it back on them. Instead of saying, you don't love me, tell them, no, you don't love me. You don't treat me with respect, with love, with deference as a parent. You're just greedy and grasping and trying to take everything I've ever earned away. I said, I think I'd get me one of those little stickers and put it on the back of my motorhome, spending my children's inheritance. It isn't theirs until you die anyhow. And if it goes into probate, it goes to the lawyers and you're not going to get it. Nah, 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 nah. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? No, it's not. God wants us to be sweet and loving and kind and generous and respectful. To Him, first of all. So Moses... did not live up to that at that one particular point. It was his anger, not God's. 
Well, God had his own problem with the people, didn't he? But God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It isn't yours, it isn't mine, it wasn't Moses. So because of the people's attitude, he got angry and struck the rock, went beyond what God had authorized him to do. We need to be careful. Isn't it Paul that talked about what carefulness should be in us? How we should watch and be very, very careful with what we think, we see, we do. Anyway, God just re-explained to Moses why he wasn't going in, and Moses wrote it down for us to read and remember, and hopefully we won't do the same things that Moses did. Moses was a wonderful example for the most part. God is going to reward him. He's going to be in the kingdom of God, Hebrews 11. Uh, he's listed among the faithful. Uh, he did make a mistake, but then so did everybody else that ever lived, including all the leaders who lived, made mistakes. But God was willing to forgive, and he forgave Moses. He just didn't let him have that physical uh, excitement of going into the promised land. But he'll be in the ultimate promised land for sure. So God only takes it so far, you know, and he forgives and he moves on. So then let's go to chapter 33, where Moses then pronounces a blessing. He's been told it's time to die, go up the mountain, look into the promised land, and then die. But as a parting thing then, he put a blessing on Israel as they stood there before him. This is the blessing, wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, well, here's the beginning of the blessing. The Eternal came from Sinai and rose up from Seir to them. He shined forth from Mount Paran. So he started that connection at Sinai, and then it was carried forth through their wandering to some degree. He was with them. Uh, as rebellious as they were, uh, he still guided them by the cloud, by the fire. And he was going to ultimately deliver them, at least their children, after he let the rebellious ones die in the desert. So he treated rebellion very strongly. You know, we, we bring up Korah, and somebody always says, well, you talking about me? They don't want to be branded as a rebel or as rebellious. But all Israel was rebellious. It wasn't just one or two or three. And God did the same thing to the whole congregation that he did to Korah. Did he not? Because of their rebellion, he let them all die in the desert and their children went into the promised land. So he was with them and he came with ten thousands of saints from his right hand went a fiery law for them. Now, I find it very interesting that he uses this term, ten thousands of his saints. We have calculated, and I think not too far off, that there were probably several million Israelites that came out of Egypt. It does say 600,000 men plus women and children. And we know that there were probably lots and lots of kids because the Egyptian people got afraid of them. They had so many kids, uh, they were prolific. And so there could have been easily three or four million people who came out. And yet, and, and I guess they kept having kids in the desert, probably. Uh, nothing to stop that. It just kept on happening. And then the parents got old and died, but the kids prolifer proliferated. So there must have still been maybe several million people here ready to go into the promised land. Now why does he say ten thousands? Because this projects as its final fulfillment down to the very end of the age. When Christ returns. Notice that in Jude 14. I want to tie this in a little bit. Because it's one of these other internal proofs that... 
Moses wasn't speaking just to those people, but he was speaking to you and me sitting here today. Jude is writing about the end time and when Christ begins to deal with the people of this world. It says in Jude 14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So even Enoch, all the way back, before Abraham, understood that Christ was going to return with tens of thousands of his saints. It makes me wonder how much of the plan of God they may have understood way back even then to understand more than Protestants do today who think that he is going to rapture millions when he returns. And even the church who thought maybe it would be just the 144,000 plus an innumerable multitude that in the first resurrection there would be millions and millions of people. Not so when you go into the Scriptures carefully. You understand then that the first resurrection only includes 144,000 exactly. That's tens of thousands, not millions and millions. So, even back here, God inspired Moses to put it in terms of tens of thousands, not millions who were probably standing before him that very day. First Thessalonians 3. I'll tie just a couple more with this. First Thessalonians 3. And here verse 13. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord, Emmanuel, with all his saints. So they'll rise to meet him in the air, and he is going to then a year later, come back with all his saints. And Revelation 21 shows that there are 144,000 of those. Only 144,000. Notice uh, Hebrews 22. I mean, well, you can't go there. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 22. Here he's talking about Esau, who had a wrong attitude uh, and then he talks about Sinai and what happened there. Verse 21, And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. It wasn't just the people, but Moses himself was scared half to death. But you are come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, which comes down from heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Notice there's an innumerable company of angels, but not of people. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So the saints, the members of the church then, come before Christ, and they are the ones who will be changed at the time the heavenly Jerusalem comes down. And the total number then is 144,000. So Jude knew what he was talking about, and Moses knew what he was talking about. Or maybe he didn't fully understand, but God inspired him to put it that way. We don't speak of millions as tens of thousands, do we? We say millions and millions, if there's millions and millions. Tens of thousands doesn't equate to millions. Never has in language. And he's speaking here of the very end. Uh, the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, verse 24, and to Emmanuel, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So he's saying those people then that he was addressing and us who were included uh, were coming before all these. See that you refuse not him that speaks, for if they escape not who refused him that spoke on earth, which would probably be speaking of Moses here, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. So Moses spoke from the earth 
what he spoke to Israel, and Christ came and echoed it from heaven, or inspired these words to be written by men after he went to heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth. He shook it at Sinai. That's what Moses is addressing. Uh, But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. So he's speaking of the end time age, now, when he is about to shake the heavens and the earth. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. We must be in an unshakable condition. We cannot be shaken by anything. We only shake and quake and fear before God. But we don't fear man who is able to destroy the body, but he who is able to destroy both body and soul. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, is Paul basically reiterating here what Moses told the people in that song? To quake, to fear before God, to fear before his law, to do the things he says to do, so that you might prolong your days. Now, we're talking about prolonging them eternally here. (coughs) Excuse me. So a fiery law came forth for them from Sinai. And and in Hebrews, Paul is talking about the very same thing. Verse 4, Moses commanded us a law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun, another word for Israel, when the heads of the people and the tribes of Israel were gathered together. So then he gets down to specific blessings here. Let Reuben live and not die, and let not his men be few. Reuben was unstable, as we read in Genesis 49, and of himself, with his instability, might have caused himself to become few. But Moses is saying, don't let that happen. Let him go ahead and and produce. Not much said about Reuben, is there? He was the firstborn son. But we know from Jeremiah that God changed that to Ephraim. Just changed the order. He put Ephraim ahead of Reuben. Then he has a blessing for Judah. This is the blessing of Judah. And he said, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and be you in help to him from his enemies. Now it had been pronounced as well, that Judah would be pursued, that Judah would become uh, a bitter enemy or have foes and be killed. And part of that was pronounced because of them rejecting Christ and doing what they did to him. So this was a pronouncement that was made clear back here and had far-reaching consequences to the time of Christ and beyond. And still today, the Jew word, a Jew word, or the Jew word, or Jew, is an epithet to a lot of people on this earth. So he said, be a help to them from their enemies. Didn't say, take their enemies away. Uh, Moses knew what had been pronounced upon the tribes uh, by Jacob, who gave the blessing to the different tribes in Genesis 49. Notice one verse again for Judah. Uh, Verse 8, And of Levi he said, Let your Thummim and your Urim be with your Holy One. Uh, The decisions you make, uh, be sure that they have God's blessing, that you have God's guidance in everything that you do. That's what the Urim and Thummim was. On Aaron's breastplate, there were twelve lights, different colors, that would light up. And that's how they were able to go through the tribes and determine who had sinned. In the case of, uh, of Achan, and, uh, they ask which tribe. And the tribe for 
the one Achan was in, lit up. Which family? Started naming families. And that lit up, I guess. And they were able to trace it down to one person. That's kind of scary, isn't it? There were times with my kids, I wished that I had something that light up when one of them told the truth or lied. Sometimes it was hard to tell who was lying and who wasn't. But he said, let the guidance of God be there, really, because the Urim and Thummim would go away eventually. Whom you did prove at Massa, and with whom you did strive at the waters of Meribah. Be with God, the one that you fought against at times. Uh, Don't deter from him, but seek his guidance and counsel in everything you do. Who said to his father and to his mother, I have not seen him. Neither did he acknowledge his brethren, nor knew his own children, for they have observed your word and kept your covenant. So, Levi and Simeon had their problems, but he said, They shall teach Jacob your judgments, and Israel your law. So he's going to use them in spite of themselves. They'd sinned, they'd had problems, they'd been too mean in one case, or I guess that was still ahead Yeah, that's still to come. Uh, But those characteristics were there. So he said, you've already sinned and you're going to sin some more. But in spite of yourselves, you shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and the whole burnt sacrifice upon your altar. Now I think that gives us hope and encouragement because we have become spiritual Levites, haven't we, all of us? Spiritual Jews, spiritual Levites were here to become kings and priests and to teach people around the world and the world tomorrow. That's what we've been called to do. And we are here today having committed all kinds of sins and transgressions and attitude against God. And yet he's willing to look past those if we repent and change and grow and overcome. And he will use us in spite of what we've been, and what we are even yet. Because these people weren't done sinning even then, were they? They went on to do all kinds of transgressions. So God is a very merciful God. Now we read back here in the law about how God will judge, and I've already talked about how some will go into the lake of fire if they continue to rebel and don't repent. And yet we have a lot of other scriptures to balance that about how God's mercy endures forever. One whole long chapter of the Psalms just says it over and over and over and over. Uh, I've read that now and then, and sometimes I think, boy, I don't want to read that one. It's just too long. It says the same thing over and over again. God wanted us to get the point, I guess, that His mercy really is a long-running thing. It goes on and on and on. So, you know, you and I sometimes have the same attitudes about the same things over and over and over day in and day out, week after week and month after month. And we go to God with the same old problems, don't we, sometimes? Because in each of us, intrinsically, are certain weaknesses. They may vary a little bit from person to person, but human nature is pretty much the same wherever you go and whoever you are. So we go to Him as human every day, making human mistakes, having human attitudes. And he gives us a new son every morning, says, you're forgiven, you get a fresh start every day. How merciful can you get? He doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't let the sun go down on his anger in that sense. He gives us opportunity. So I think there's much encouragement here just seeing what Moses is saying to people. See, Moses knew what these people's problems were. He knew what Jacob had pronounced the blessings and the things that they would have that were wrong in their lives. And he had just lived with them for 40 years out there, so he knew them pretty well, didn't he? But he was bringing a blessing and showing mercy. So in spite of everything, you're going to teach God's judgments and His law. And he asked God then, in addressing Levi, bless eternal his substance and accept the work of his hands. Smite through the loins of them that rise against him 
and of them that hate him, that they rise not again. That's a pretty good blessing, isn't it? He knew the Levites in a leadership position, had certain characteristics about them that weren't the best, and yet they were put there to be in a position of authority, and they would be looked down upon, they would be criticized, uh, their faults, their errors would be pointed out, and yet God said, or Moses said, or asked God to bless them anyway, and anyone who rose against them or hated them, they be put down and die. In other words, take care of Levi's enemies, Father. Well, that's a pretty good blessing right there. Wouldn't you like to have that blessing on you? Where anybody that hated you or wished you hurt or harm, God would take care of? You wouldn't have to worry about it? That'd be a pretty good blessing, wouldn't it? I've had attitudes a few times in my life. If I cast back, I don't like to go there necessarily, but a few times there have been people I just as soon see dead. If it had been up to me, they probably would have been dead. Leave that in God's hands. He can take care of that. That was a pretty nice blessing for them, wasn't it? Well, do you know that it applies to you? It applies to us. God says that if we obey Him and serve Him in this end time, He will take care of our enemies. He will make us a sharp threshing instrument. What does a threshing instrument do? Well, they had hand ones then. We got big combines today, and they boy, they tear it. They tear it up. Back then, you had a very sharp scythe, just cut the stalks right down. But God says he'll make us a sharp threshing instrument against our enemies and also that he will fight and take care of our enemies and protect us. Same thing. To the spiritual Levite at the end that he pronounced upon the Levites then. And of Benjamin, verse 12, he said, The beloved of the eternal shall dwell in safety by him. Benjamin was a much-loved child. Uh, Jacob loved Joseph first, and then his affection went to Benjamin after Joseph was sold off. Uh, Benjamin was, had a special place in his dad's heart. The beloved of the Eternal shall dwell in safety by him, and the Lord shall cover him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. So he says God was going to take a special interest in and take care of Benjamin, and because of God's care for Benjamin then, other people, his brothers along with him, would also dwell safely. Well, that's a pretty good blessing. If you get near Benjamin, you're going to be all right. I sometimes think that we may not have gotten all of our uh, definitions of who is who correct. I'm Almost certain we got Ephraim and Manasseh backward at this point. But I think that in some of the other cases, we may not really know who is who. And that that may require some more study and some more insight and understanding at some point. And Benjamin might be one of those. And of Joseph, he said, now notice this. When we get to Joseph, it's just like Genesis 49. Jacob spent a long time, several verses, talking about all the blessings that would come upon Joseph. And Moses, when he pronounced this blessing on each tribe in order, when he got to Joseph, it's extended. It's one verse in most cases. For the others, uh, Levi got a little bit longer dissertation. And some of his errors pointed out, as well as how God would take care of him. But when he came to Joseph, notice, verse 13, Of Joseph he said, Blessed of the eternal be his land. He hasn't said that to any of the others. This is a special blessing on the land. Where Joseph is, is going to be the most blessed land. 
Look at the earth today and see where the most blessed land is. You can only come really to one conclusion. Right here in North America. For the precious things of heaven, for the dew and for the deep that couches beneath. So above and below the land of Joseph would be blessing. I want to turn back quickly to Genesis and see. He puts that a little bit differently there, but it's saying the same thing and it makes it a little clearer. Uh, where's Joseph here? Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. Now that's pretty much the way Moses said it as well. <coughs> a blessed land, and here it's talking about the same thing, a very productive land. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him, but his bow abode in strength. Uh, we've had enemies. Uh, we fought a lot of wars. And up until Nam, we pretty well won, and God intervened at Normandy and other places and caused us to be able to win. But from Viet, from well, actually from Korea and Vietnam and forward from there, we haven't really won. We haven't really won in Iraq. We haven't won in Afghanistan, and we won't. Uh, we're over there, and we're kind of occupying it, but we haven't won anything. They're still fighting us tooth and nail. But it did abide in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Nobody could war against the United States, could they? You could fight a whole world war, and we would win. Not once, but twice. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So he entwines the sticks of, Jer of uh, Ephraim, or Joseph, and Judah together here with Christ, who is the stone of Israel. Even by the God of your Father who shall help you, and by the Almighty who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above. So rains, snows, uh, blessings from the air, blessings of the deep that lies under. We've had rich mineral deposits, uh, even uh, energy deposits under our land and under our seas, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. We've proliferated in this land. The blessings of your Father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. So Joseph, Father Jacob's blessings came down on Joseph and primarily upon Ephraim, who was put ahead of the older son Manasseh. They shall be on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. So now we can go back to Deuteronomy with that background. I, I'm spending more time on Joseph, partly because I believe that we are one side of Joseph, the Ephraim side. And so it means a bit more to us than reading about Benjamin or Gad or Asher or somebody. Of course, others will hear this tape perhaps at some time, who are of those other tribes. But God himself speaks, just as Jacob, Moses did, more to those who receive the greater blessings. Ephraim is the firstborn son, Jeremiah 31. Let's put in that place. So for the deep that couches beneath, so above and from below, we would be blessed. We, we read that one scripture back there a little earlier about how we'd have brass and iron to dig out of the ground. And, we, and I checked and found out that they don't have those things in the Middle East. Have a little bit of copper, and that's it. Nothing else in the Middle East, in the land they call Israel. It has no mineral wealth. It has not much rain from above, and it has no things precious from beneath. That is not the promised land. If you find the promised land, you must find these promises there. Because that's what God says. 
Okay, verse 14, And for the precious fruits brought forth by the sun, and for the precious things put forth by the moon, blessed day and night from above and below with good weather for crops, and it would be productive. And for the chief things of the ancient mountains, and for the precious things of the lasting hills. So wherever Joseph would be would also be mountains and hills, ancient ones. Ones known about by the ancients, I think, would be implied here. Now, most of it goes to Ephraim, not Manasseh. Where do you find the mountains? You don't find them in Britain. You don't find them in the United Kingdom. There's some small hills up in uh, Scotland. Well, by comparison... You go back east and people call some of those hills there in Ohio and uh, places like that mountains. Nah, sorry. I can't go climb that mountain, they'll say. What do you mean mountain? It's 300 feet up or something like that. Two, 300, 400 feet max. It's not a mountain. Same way in the United Kingdom. Yeah, they got a few places they got some hills. They don't have the ancient mountains. It includes both, the mountains and the hills here. Most of this is in Ephraim, the promised land. And for the precious things of the earth and fullness thereof, and for the goodwill of him that dwelt in the bush, the goodwill of God who appeared in the burning bush to Moses. God will put his blessing upon Joseph. Let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph. It's interesting that Moses would mention that because he was there to observe the burning bush. That was something he saw and very much remembered how God had led him through the wilderness, how he brought him back to Egypt and brought him through and delivered the people of, of Israel from Egypt and how he destroyed Pharaoh This was very much in Moses' mind as he was bringing this blessing. The blessings of that God. Let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph and upon the top of the head of him that was separated from his brethren. This just goes on and on, doesn't it? Sounds like America today or what it used to be. It's kind of going away from that now, but it used to be. His glory is like the firstling of his bullock. Well, when you have the first calf born to your cow, it's so exciting to see her have her first baby. Somebody here had a horse that had its first baby some time back. Very excited about that. You know, probably wouldn't be quite as excited about the second one or the third or the fourth one, but that first one was exciting. So God says the excitement and the blessing will be like the firstborn. And his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them shall he push the people together to the ends of the earth. Now who is the leader of Joseph? Ephraim was to be the firstborn with the greatest blessings. Does England push all the nations of the earth in any direction she wants to push them? No, she sends a few troops along, maybe, while we push them, doesn't she? Now, she pushed somewhat in the height of her glory, but she never pushed like the United States does. We just throw our weight around everywhere. We like the ones with the sharp unicorn horns, and we can poke where we want to poke, and nobody can do anything about it at least up until now. It's about to change. And they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. So he makes it very plain who would be the bigger. And there are many, many, many more people, times tens of millions in this country than there are in Britain, and even all of the uh, colonies that are left to Britain. Put them all together, and there's not anywhere near the 300 plus million we have. So it is tens of thousands against thousands.
Verse 18, And of Zebulun he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. So God is going to put blessings upon all the tribes of Israel, and did, uh, if they are primarily in northwestern Europe, which I think they are. Uh, that area has been blessed and did have good living for the most part over the last hundreds and thousands of years. They haven't been blessed like we have, given what we've had, because the firstborn received the double blessing, received the best land and the best of everything. And this nation certainly fits that category. But these others had blessings as well. Uh, verse 19, They shall call the people to the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness. For they shall suck of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hid in the sand. So Zebulun, Issachar would also have uh, good fishing, the abundance of the seas, and treasures hid in the sand. Some treasures from beneath. Maybe some of those Norwegians and Swedes and Danes who went fishing and had the abundance of fish could be among these. And of Gad he said, Blessed be he that enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion and tears the arm with the crown of the head. Now, who is that? Uh, we won't get into that today, uh, but I think this whole subject could use some more study as to which tribe is which. And it's sometimes kind of hard to tell. <coughs> anyway, verse 21, And he provided the first part for himself, because there in a portion of the lawgiver was he seated. And he came with the heads of the people. He executed the justice of the Eternal and his judgments with Israel. So Gad here is given a bit more print uh, in how he had been a leader among Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan. Not a whole lot there good about Dan. And even God himself does not name Dan in the book of Revelation in one point. Verse 23, And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full with the blessing of the eternal, possess you the west and the south, the land they were going in. Now, Later on, these tribes went into bigger lands in Western Europe, and now we're into this country. But I think uh, God is going to establish the original promised land, probably with Ezekiel's temple, and the people will be divided up according to tribes. Now, whether that's physically speaking or spiritually at this point uh, remains to be seen. I think primarily spiritually, because we are all such a mix. I don't know how you'd know who was who anymore. Uh, you know, we've intermarried across the face of the earth back and forth. God knows, and I guess he could divide, but it might be very hard to do. <coughs> and then with all the peoples of the earth, the Gentiles grafted into spiritual Israel, it makes it even more difficult. Now I'm beginning to push my voice a little bit, I can tell. Excuse me. Uh, let's see, verse 24, And of Asher, he said, Let Asher be blessed with children, let him be acceptable to his brethren, and let him dip his foot in oil. So be prosperous, uh, get along good with his brothers, and be blessed. Your shoes shall be iron and brass, and as your days, so shall your strength be. Uh, you can walk over pretty much anything with iron and brass shoes. There is none like the God of Israel who rides upon the heaven in your help and in his excellency on the sky. Here is a blessing for all you tribes, uh, specifically laid out. Don't any of you forget the God of heaven and earth, the creator God who made you all and who blesses you from heaven. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before you, and shall say, Destroy them. And that was true then, and it is going to be true right down the road in front of us as well. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. No one else, Israel, will dwell in safety as a refuge. And we know that there is a refuge in God and in a particular place at the end. 
The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine, and also his heaven shall drop down dew. Now he's going to gather spiritual Israel, and a lot of them will be physical Israelites as well, from all over the earth to a place that is going to be of corn and dew and be very, very productive. Now we've read in the prophecies about how he is going to give us a garden of God and a garden of Eden, Isaiah 51, among other places. And he's going to bless his people at the end who seek him as their refuge. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also his heavens shall drop down dew. Uh, Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like to you, O people, saved by the eternal? And not only are we physically saved at this point, but we will be spiritually saved as well. So it's a prophecy for way down into the future. The shield of your help, and who is the sword of your excellency? And your enemies shall be found liars to you, and you shall tread upon their high places. God is going to put his people above all. And ultimately in the kingdom of God, as kings and priests over everyone on the earth. So let's finish chapter 34 right quick. And Moses went up from the plains of Moab to the mountain of Nebo to the top of Pisgah that is over against Jericho. And the Eternal showed him all the land of Gilead to Dan. So he gave that final blessing. Then he took off up the mountain. (coughs) And all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah unto the utmost sea. So looking over the promised land, he could see the sea. Can you do that in the Middle East? No. Can't do it. wonder what this is talking about. And the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, unto Zoar. And the Eternal said to him, This is the land which I swore to you, unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We have areas in the southwestern U.S. that have palm trees. You don't see them growing in the higher elevations, but when you get in low elevation, you got palm trees. we got palm trees right over here in St. George. And they got them all over California and in the lower areas where it's not as cold. And the Eternal said to him, This is the land us for to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he was overlooking it, and he could see the sea. I will give it to your seed. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Eternal, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Eternal. And God, he, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor, but no man knows of his sepulcher to this day. God hid Moses so he could not be found and exhumed and worshipped and and hauled around like they do Nefertiti and Tutankhamun, or however you say it, and others like that. God didn't let that happen. And Moses was a hundred and twenty years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. He could still cut the mustard. He was still strong, and yet it was time for him to die. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days, so the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him. And the children of Israel hearkened to him, and did as the Eternal commanded Moses. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Eternal knew face to face. And all the signs and the wonders which the Eternal sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, and all his servants, and to all his land, And in all that mighty hand, and in all that great terror which Moses showed in the sight of all Israel. Now we can read in Jeremiah that he says the delivery that he is going to bring us in the end time is going to be so great that we'll even forget the Red Sea and the deeds God did with Moses. So Moses can only remind them of what he had seen and his experience, and the great and mighty hand of Almighty God. And now we have forward, or to have opportunity to look forward, 
to the greatest deliverance that has ever been, including that of the Red Sea. Well, it's going to be pretty spectacular what's ahead, and I want every one of us to be there. So let's get the job done, shall we? All right, that's the final end of the feast series, finally.